Live from the edge of the known multiverse, it's the Dockiverse Podcast. Episode 112, The Cast Iron Virgin. In this episode, we've got a horror movie review and readings from the Doclopedia. And now, let's get on with the program. Hello there, gentle listeners. As you may have been able to tell from the less than frenetic intro I did, I am recording this particular piece of the podcast late at night when everybody except myself is asleep. So I'll be sounding a little bit more like a late night DJ back in the 60s or 70s. Anyway, I want to thank you all for coming back and I hope you had a good week. I hope your November went well. Here we are in December, heading towards Christmas and New Year's and all that sort of stuff. Things around here have been interesting, to say the least. Nothing really bad, nothing really great, just a lot of shit going on. And one of the things, though, that is great and not bad is my wonderful group of patrons who every month send me money and they keep the podcast going and they help me out financially with that money. And so I thank them at the top of every show, and I'm going to do that right now. So thank you, Avis. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you, James. Thank you, Marion. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, David. And thank you, Peter. You guys are the greatest, and I hope you enjoy the show. So one little notation I want to make here is that uh, starting with this episode... I'm going to be back to doing horror movie reviews, but I'm only going to do one a month. Now, there are a lot of horror movies out there, so this could set me up for a decade of just doing horror movies once a month, but I probably won't do that. I'll probably cover some really good ones for a year or so, and then I'll go on to something else, science fiction movies, you know, something like that. So we've got a horror movie review, we've got readings from Doclopedia coming up, and Then, all through the month of December, the episode portions you hear on each episode, the uh, segments, readings from Doclopedia, horror movie reviews, GM's Toolkit, whatever, that will be the same every week. So, the first week of the month, you get the horror movie review, you get readings from Doclopedia, and then etc., etc. However, at the end of this month... There will be a third segment that I introduce, and that will be every week, and it's called a point crawl, where I provide the points in what will be a point crawl if somebody wants to run it. Um, I give you the basic places to stop, and then the GMs can put whatever they want in between. That's how a point crawl works, as different from a hex crawl where you know where everything is, and you know what you'll encounter going along the way. Um, A point crawl, you could move it wherever. You don't have to know exactly what's between the two points. You can make that up, or you can just say, oh, you guys travel two weeks and you reach this place. So yes, that'll be starting the last uh, week of this year, of this, yeah, this year, and last week of this month. And then it will continue on probably all the way through January and I think probably February. I think it's a 10-part deal. I'm not sure. I haven't looked at it in months. I wrote it up and then kind of put it on a back burner. So anyway, 
we have our podcast ahead of us, and I hope you enjoy it. And I'll see you when I get to the end of it to do the outro. All right, folks, as I'm going to be doing in the first episode of every month, I am going to do a horror movie review. I took the month of November off from doing that, so here we go again. And this one is a real twisty, weird, strange-ass movie. It's called Dr. X. Dr. X is a 1932 American pre-code mystery horror film. Produced jointly by First National and Warner Brothers. The movie is based on a 1931 play originally titled The Terror by Howard W. Comstock and Alan C. Miller. The movie was directed by Michael Curtiz and stars Lionel Atwill, Faye Ray, and Lee Tracy. Now, like I said, this is a weird, strange movie. Dr. X was produced before the Motion Picture Production Code was enforced. Themes such as murder, rape, cannibalism, and prostitution are interwoven into the story. This is 1932, folks. And it's right before the production code went in and cut all that stuff out, along with a lot of other stuff that was much less weird. The film was one of the last produced, along with Warner Brothers' subsequent Mystery of the Wax Museum, in the early two-color Technicolor process. Separate black-and-white prints were shipped to small towns and foreign markets, while color prints were reserved for major cities. Once again, people out in the country, small towns, foreigners, they got fucked. Rich people got to see it in color. Now, the plot is that Daily World newspaper Newshawk, Lee Taylor, is investigating a series of pathological murders that have taken place over a series of months in New York City. The murders always take place at night, under the glow of the full moon, and everybody has been cannibalized after the murder. Witnesses describe a horribly disfigured monster as the killer. Now, Dr. Xavier, not that one, is called in for his medical opinion, but the police have an ulterior motive. They want to investigate Xavier's medical academy, as the scalpel used to cannibalize the bodies of the victims is exclusive to that institution. Aside from Xavier, there are other suspects. There's Wells, who's an amputee, who has made a study of cannibalism. There's Haynes, who displays a sexual perversion with voyeurism. Duke, a grouchy paralytic. And Roswitz, who is conducting studies of the psychological effects of the moon. So, a lot of suspects. The police give Xavier 48 hours to apprehend a killer... And you know what? I'm not going to read any more of this plot synopsis except to say that there's weird shit going on. There is a little bit of comedy. Uh, you got Fay Ray being threatened by things again as she did in many of her early movies. And it's just, it's a weird movie. And I kind of think this is one of the movies that sort of put Lionel Atwill in that category of guys to play weird and or imperious doctors or professors or whatever because he did a ton of these movies over a great many years. Uh, many of them later on were very low-budget movies. And I think he ended up killing himself. I'm not sure. But, uh, yeah, it's a strange, strange-ass movie. 
and there's a lot of weird shit going on in it. The cast stars Lionel Atwell as Dr. Jerry Xavier, Faye Ray as Joanne Xavier, his daughter, Lee Tracy as Lee Taylor, Daily World reporter, Preston Foster as Dr. Wells, Academy of Surgical Research, John Ray as Dr. Haynes, Academy of Surgical Research, Harry Beresford as Dr. Duke, also of the Academy, Arthur Edmund Carew as Dr. Rowitz, also of the Academy, Leela Bennett as Mamie, Dr. Xavier's maid, Robert Warwick as Police Commissioner Stevens, and George Rosner as Otto, Dr. X's butler. As I said earlier, this was the second Warner Brothers feature to be filmed in the improved Technicolor process, which removed grain and improved both the color and the clarity of a reel's images. This improved process had initially been used on the runaround in 1931 and resulted in an attempt at a color revival by the studios late in 1931. However, facing public apathy, the studios quickly retreated from their ambitious plans for color films late in 1932. Now, to a modern audience, this is just weird. Because who the fuck wants to watch black and white movies? Well, these, the public did. You know, everybody did. Apparently, because Warner Brothers said fuck it and put Technicolor on hold for quite a while. During the production, an alternative black and white version was shot and still exists, although side-by-side comparisons show that most takes between the two are the same. So, the film was, like I say, pre-code, and it's got all this weird cannibal and rape and strange bullshit going on, and I can imagine that it was one of the movies that the code people, old Will Hayes, that son of a bitch, uh, probably looked at and said, oh no, we can't have this, it'll fuck with public morals. Right, okay, yeah, because that always works, is keeping people from seeing things. Yeah. Anyway, following the success of Dr. X at the box office, Warner Brothers followed up with Mystery of the Wax Museum, which also starred Fay Ray and Lionel Atwell, and was also directed by Michael Curtiz. And Mystery of the Wax Museum Museum was, again, shot in a Technicolor process, and that was that. You know, they cut it off after that. The set designs for this movie were done by Anton Grote, and the makeup was designed by Max Factor, who went on to found a makeup dynasty, which lasted for a long time. I don't know if they still make Max Factor makeup or not. And Dr. X was the first of three Michael Curtiz films with Lionel Atwell, along with Mystery of the Wax Museum and the 1935 Errol Flynn adventure film Captain Blood, which is a great movie, but we're not going to cover that right now. Dr. X was also the first of three films that co-starred Lionel Atwill and Faye Ray. They would later start together in the Mystery of the Wax Museum and The Vampire Bat, both of which are pretty good movies. Uh, Time Magazine's reviewer wrote, Dr. X is a routine nightmare and is intended for avid patrons of synthetic horror rather than for normal cinema addicts. Uh, you know, that may have been his uh, pithy little review, but this movie made a lot of money. However, Dr. X was well-received by many critics and proved to be a success at the box office. So, Time Magazine, you fucked up on that one. Because of the popularity of the film, Warner Brothers followed up with Mystery of the Wax Museum. Now, you will see sometimes a re- movie called The Return of Dr. X. 
and it's not a sequel. Uh, it's really not much like it at all. But there is an interesting story about it because Return of Dr. X starred Humphrey Bogart as Dr. X. And he's a guy, I think he's brought back from the dead or something. It's been a while since I saw it. And he was assigned to do this movie by the studio because he pissed somebody off, one of the studio heads. Jack Warner, I'm not sure. But he refused to do a movie or he got up in somebody's face or something like that. And they made him do this movie. And Bogart never talked about this movie after it. It was the worst movie he said he ever did. He hated it. And that was it. He just sort of wiped it out. Now, there is a 1942 universal horror movie called Night Monster, which also co-stars Lionel Atwill as a doctor. And it has a similar plot and virtually the same denouement. So I have seen that movie, and yeah, it's just a lot like this one, although made 11 years later. As far as box office goes, the movie earned $405,000 domestically and $189,000 foreign in 1931. That's pretty damn good money in the middle of the Depression. By the late 1950s, with the black-and-white version of the film was included in a package of older films syndicated to television, the Technicolor version was thought to be lost. No prints could be found, and Technicolor discarded most of its two-color negatives back in 1948. But after the death of Jack L. Warner on September 9, 1978, a print was discovered in his personal collection. It was copied to Safety Film for Preservation, distributed to Revival Theaters, and transferred to video. The original nitrate film print was donated to the UCLA Film and Television Archive, which on very rare occasions has allowed to be screened publicly at properly equipped and licensed facilities because nitrate film, first of all, it deteriorates real fast, and second of all, it is totally, totally flammable. It's really bad. Anytime you hear about a bunch of movies have gone up in flame, they're usually those old movies, usually nitrate film, and sometimes it just self-ignites. A far superior digital restoration was conducted by the Archive in 2020 and distributed on Blu-ray disc in April 2021. So there you have it, folks. That's Dr. X. Uh, like I say, it's got some weird shit in it. It's a good movie. It's fun to watch. And it does play on uh, Turner Classic movies fairly often. Um, often when they're doing their science fiction or... or uh, horror movies for Halloween or something like that, they'll pop it in there. Sometimes, I think uh, they did Lionel Atwill as an actual star of the month one time, and he ran a bunch of his movies. So if you get a chance to see it, I highly recommend doing so. And next month, we'll have another movie review. And now, gentle listeners, we have another episode of Readings from the Doclopedia. Number 545, The Colors, Purple. The purple woman is one of the most intriguing things in all of paranormal research. The way she can fade into and out of view suggests that she might be a ghost, but her very definite human form suggests that she might be some sort of mutant human. Of course, the ufologists are convinced she is an alien or perhaps some secret project using captured alien technology. Regardless of what she is, 
This nude, six-foot-tall female appears three to five times a year in various locations around the world, usually in areas of low population density. She can appear during the day or the night, but she never speaks. She has aided people in trouble and chased away people from certain areas, but most often she just wanders around. All attempts to communicate, capture, or even touch her have failed so far. Number 546, the colors, orange. I'll tell you what I know of the orange dragon, lads, and I hope it helps you when you go hunting it. First off, it's big, but nowhere as big as one of your red or black dragons. I reckon it measures 60, 70 feet long. Not a flyer, but it can run faster than the best horse and turn on a dime. And leap? Hell, fire can it leap. 100 feet easy. Maybe 150. So, as you can imagine, it ain't gonna stand there and fight you. Now, your orange dragon doesn't breathe fire or spit acid, but it can breathe out a cold fog that'll chill you right to the bone in under a minute. So beware of that. Now, of course, if it bites you, even a little nip, you'll be in agony for hours if it doesn't just kill you. Best way to fight it? Well, arrows and magic, sure enough, but you need some sword swinging up close right there at the beginning to keep it distracted while your archers and your mages get their act together. Have your archers aim for the hindquarters and the front shoulders so as to stop that leaping and slow it down. Mages ought to hit it with confusion spells and maybe a few lightning bolts. Well, fellers, I hope that helps you. Good luck, and if you don't die, come around and tell me how things went. Okay, folks, we are at the end of the program, and I would like to thank you all for listening today. You are great, and I hope you enjoyed the program. If you have any suggestions, comments, or questions, I can be reached on Facebook, where I'm Doc Cross, on WordPress at the Docaverse blog, via email at agentroscoe at gmail.com. If you are listening via Anchor, you can leave a voicemail, and you patrons over on my Patreon page can just leave a message there. They will send me a text, and I will find out all about it and get right back to you. By the way, I am also now on Mastodon, so you can look me up as Doc Cross, and I'm on the Dice Camp server. If you would like to support me via Patreon and hear these podcasts at least two months before they go up on Anchor, go to www.patreon.com forward slash Doc Cross. Sign up for whatever amount of money you wish, from a dollar up to a million dollars as far as I'm concerned. I will also add that if you become a patron, you can get uh, free stuff, PDFs I've done, other things, little mini podcasts, stuff like that. So, you know, it's worth a buck a month at least. If you want to make a one-time or occasional donation, then you probably want to go to my Kofi page, K-O-F-I, also pronounced coffee, and you'll find me there as DocCross4591. And again, you can just donate once. You can donate every so often, however you want to do it. And thank you very much. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast or advertise on it, get in touch with me by any of the methods I mentioned earlier. Our music was Jumpin' Boogie Woogie, and that came off of Audionautics. This podcast and everything on it, except the music, 
is copyright 2022 by Doc Cross. I will see you all next week. Live long and prosper.